Hello and welcome to another episode of the Aptcast, where iron sharpens iron and we poke each other with the pointy ends. I'm Wes, joined with my partner in crime, Alex. How's it going, buddy? What's up, fam? I'm good. Hey, happy people. And for Casey, all the sad people. <laughs> yeah, he, he uh, addressed all the happy people for you last week, so that was good. Oh, I love you, Casey. Yeah. Uh, we, we miss Casey, but we're glad to have Alex back. Uh, so you know what that means. We're going to jump into the news. But before we do, uh, the, the housekeeping up front, uh, catch us on the social media, uh, Facebook and Gab. We're there. We're on YouTube now. So if you're watching us from YouTube, hey, everybody. Appreciate you. Happy and sad. A like. Um, and uh, Patreon for, for those who want to help support us financially in our continued efforts to, to grow and um really growing quality at this point because uh, we've got we've got a very amateur situation going on um, but we would appreciate uh, any interaction you have with us comment share subscribe all that good stuff and uh, all the podcast catchers you can get us there I think that's it right Alex that, yes sir I think that's okay. all of them all right so a few quick hits through the news um, this week. Uh, it seems that uh, vacationing to Mexico is now frowned upon. Border crossing right. is not uh, <laughs> is not a good thing anymore. How dare you be a family man and go on vacation with your wife and son? Yes. What's what's your take on that with with crews? Is it uh, simply yeah. just bad optics, or is is there a dereliction of duty here? I mean. I haven't found anyone who has a problem with it who can actually give me a reasonable answer for why he should have either A, remained in Texas, or B, what he could have been doing in Texas that he couldn't do elsewhere, right? Yeah. I, I haven't seen the answer for that. So dereliction of duty? No. Nobody can answer that. In any answer I get is – well, he's a lawmaker. He should be pushing for regulation and all these different things that could happen. I'm like, okay, fine. He's a lawmaker working in D.C. Anything and he's a conservative lawmaker. <laughs> and he's a conservative lawmaker, so he wouldn't be doing what you want him to do anyway. Uh, and also, he should be pushing for things to happen locally. Okay, he can do that by phone. He can do that by teleconference. He would probably be doing that anyway because of COVID social distancing restrictions – most of – and as a matter of fact, yesterday I was watching a um, a hearing about the whole uh, – oh, gosh, Robin Hood uh, yeah, retail investors. Yeah, I was, I was listening to uh, the House committee hearing on that. Everybody was remote. So it, it's not like he would have to be present in the office of whomever he's trying to use his political leverage on. To, to do his job as a powerful uh, government official, right? right? He could do that just as easily from the beach of Cancun. So um, I can't find a valid reason that anybody has given. If someone listening to this show has a reason that I'm unaware of, please share it because I just haven't heard one. Um, but yeah, so it's definitely an optics issue. And the biggest concern with the optics is he didn't leave at the front end of the storm. They were already full into the blackouts, the rolling blackouts. People had already died from freezing when he left Wednesday. He left Wednesday. So that caused a stink. That's bad optics. And 
the the worst part about it is after getting the bad publicity, he immediately came back and apologized, saying, "Yeah, it was probably a bad decision to go." No, it wasn't. Pick one. Either it was okay to go, or you shouldn't have ever gone. It was. It wasn't. You're you're pandering to the people trying to play play the middle ground. So. Uh, I mean, we we could we could do a whataboutism and go back to last spring and summer when Democrats had a whole panel of people on a retreat in Mexico in the middle of COVID quarantine shutdowns while they were telling everybody else, you need to shut down. We need to shut down the entire economy. They were all frolicking as a group, not not individuals with their own family, quarantining their family while on vacation. They were at a group retreat with a bunch of their leaders in Mexico. So the hypocrisy is real since nobody took them to t- task. Yeah. D- d- does that justify tr- uh, Cruz? No, it's just a compare and contrast I'm bringing up, right? Yeah. I'm not using it as a whataboutism. I'm just comparing the hypocrisy of the same people taking him to task, not caring, and most of them probably not even knowing because the media protect them so well. Yeah. That all these Democrats were at this big retreat last year when they were supposed to be uh, social distanced and quarantined from everybody with COVID. Yeah, if your criticism for for Cruz is greater than the criticism, uh, or the, there was an absence of criticism for Democrats doing the same thing, then really the objection is just the letter at the end of the name, and exactly. not the actions that were taken. Exactly, yeah. and that's I, all I, I've seen. Great. Yeah, um, and as far as as Cruz is concerned. I'll be honest, I was a little disappointed because, um, but like you, I don't see it as a dereliction of duty, but nowadays, um, and, and I don't know if it's more especially because of uh, COVID or if it's just the way the culture is trending, but there is a much more, um, a, a much higher focus on um, performance or, or, you know, the feeling that you get from um lawmakers rather than what they're actually doing right yep. think uh, aoc go into the uh, parking lot to have a photo shoot uh, to protest kids in cages right didn't really do anything but it was very effective in drawing an emotional response and yep. that emotional response drove the discussion similarly crews going down it just looks bad and yeah. well and that, one of the worst things the the only thing I would actually consider a potential dereliction of duty for him is going to the airport, knowing the animosity he has against him from the left, and asking uh, I guess it was Dallas Fort Worth the security at the airport to escort him and his family to protect them from potential threats. Right? They they were taking up. They were asking. I don't know if they got it, but they were asking for resources that needed to be used for uh, the real uh, – I just lost the word I was looking for – crisis going on in Texas right now. Yeah. So that is a potential real problem. But him leaving leaving to go in on this vacation, no. Him going after it had all started, no. It, you, what you just described is an optics issue, right? It, it's yeah. the feel that 
it's not the right decision. It doesn't matter whether it is the right decision. It's the feel that he should have been doing something. Uh, one of the arguments I got from people online was, well, Beto O'Rourke is pooling resources and working locally. Okay, he's doing that for optics. He doesn't. Yeah. He, he doesn't Once matter. Once again, it's optics. Right. He, he doesn't matter. And then, again, AOC has created a fund to get uh, resources delivered to locals that she's announcing she wants people to donate to. Okay, great. A public figure is doing what nonprofits and donations do anyway. She's doing it for optics. But people are praising her and be like, well, why isn't Cruz doing this? Nobody would care if your favorite person wasn't doing it right nobody would insinuate that Cruz needed to be doing that too if his opponent hadn't come up with an idea to make him look bad yeah right yeah. you don't know and, what and Cruz is too smart for that he's, yeah he's he's an intelligent guy he should know better ultimately yeah. he should um, know that this is going to be used against him uh and he still made the decision to go so yep. it, it it isn't it is a very bad optics thing I don't care about optics. I care about performance, right? Yeah. I don't necessarily like all of Cruz's performance, but you know that's that's a whole other subject compared to this. Uh, so, li- again, literally every argument I've heard is nobody can come up with a good idea for what he should have done that would require him to be local and working in the city. Because let's be honest, if he was going to a soup kitchen the way this person was talking about Beto or work had done. He would need the same extra security he asked for at the airport because of all the animosity against him. So if he goes out in public in the middle of this crisis, he's going to be causing the same harm that people were fussing at Trump about. Why weren't you here? Why didn't you come do this? Well, he needs the extra security because of the animosity against him that he decided to stay away until things had calmed down. So he didn't take up the resources needed for the emergency response. Same thing would be the case if Cruz was out in a in one soup kitchen being showing visibility, right? He's yeah. better to stay out of the way and let the people who have the local responsibility, who have the local authority, do their job and be the mouthpiece on the national level. He could do that from a beach in Cancun. Yeah, he he could, and uh, it, it goes back to like uh, that that whole thread kind of goes back to the idea that the. Objection is really the the letter at the end of the name, right? Yep. If he does something, he's not going to do what leftists and liberals and, and Democrats want him to do. His uh, advocating for energy policy is going to be away from the wind uh, turbines that have frozen and the solar energy that's proven uh, more costly uh, than beneficial um, and towards fossil fuels because that's the sources of energy that's uh, helping to, to keep Texas uh, it, to whatever degree it is um, moving forward. It's fossil fuels that's doing that. So Democrats are, are going to rail against him if he does something. They're going to rail against him if he doesn't. Yeah. And this is one of those where it's it's best just to darn if you low do, profile. Darn if you don't. Yeah. Yeah. Taking a Cancun vacation, not exactly. Not a low profile. Yeah. Um, but, you know, visit I mean, visit some family in that, the Midwest, or go go to Florida and visit Ben, ben Shapiro, or or you know something like that. Or drive right? outside of the danger zone and then fly to Cancun. <laughs> yep. 
Uh, I wouldn't even say that. I'd, I'd, I'd say go go to a city that's not known for uh, spring break or beach vacations or you know that kind of thing. Uh, again, that's optics to me. I, I don't care. I, I'm uh, I'm with you. It, it is, but at the same time, you know, read the rooms, so to speak. Climate. Yeah, it matters yeah. the general consensus. Yeah. So uh, on, on the parent subject, we're talking about Texas's energy crisis. Wow. Um, a lot of the complaints about them are they didn't winterize their systems. They should have. They were told to after 2011 and 1989 to winterize their systems. Well, ERCOT, the private organization that manages their power uh, infrastructure in Texas, is a is a fast and loose, mostly free market economy uh, type organization. They, yeah, they they privatized their system so they didn't have to follow some of the more stringent federal guidelines, but they were allowed to do that, right? Mm-hmm. And then, uh, so for people in Alabama, I know that's not our entire market, but for people in Alabama, they they are kind of like the Public Service Commission. They are a private organization that is publicly managed to manage a private utility. Um, so they they are answerable to the government, but they are a private entity. They privately manage the private uh, uh, electrical infrastructure of Texas. So in 2011, that was the last big winter storm they had. There was actually a federal commission sent out to the Southwest, to Texas, to Arizona, and to New Mexico. I think that's the three states that were in this publication I saw. And the result was that they needed to update winterization, they needed to update policies, and there was a whole list of things they could do to better prepare. Well, in the interim, there's been so much subsidization and so many grants provided for expansion of green energy, whether it's solar panel systems, wind generators, windmill generators, that the legacy natural gas, coal, lignite, whatever you want to call it, and oil generation systems were kind of neglected, right? They, they, they weren't neglected, but they weren't updated. They weren't expanded. The, the capacity was kind of ignored because it was far cheaper to take the government tax write-offs and take the grants and the subsidies and expand the green energy. Mm-hmm. So they expanded the green energy because of their natural weather systems, they didn't winterize like you would see in Canada or in the north, the north where you see a lot of wind, or in Germany. Um, yep. They didn't winterize because it's you know this storm is once in a century. People are saying, well, it happened in 2011. Well, no, there is one record in 2011 that still stands, mm-hmm. and it was the record, the lowest high for a time period, right? It was February 2nd, I think, but they were comparing it to February 14th when all this really hit Mm -hmm. Texas. So February 14th, 2021, compared to February 2nd, 2020, the previous low high. So the lowest high was 22 to 20 degrees that day. The lowest high on the 14th was 22 degrees, two degrees higher this year than that year. But 
the, the lows, the wind chills and all that were drastically lower this time than anything in 2011. Yeah. So yeah. everybody claiming, well, this happened in 2011. No, it didn't. It was it was a region of Texas. It wasn't the entire state. Uh, a, a much smaller percentage of their grid went down. And the, you, you can't prepare for a once in a century storm as if it's a normal occurrence. Yeah, did, didn't we can't. learn this about coronavirus last year? Right, <laughs> exactly. Uh, you can't prepare for once in a century virus the way you do for yeah. annual problems. It's a whole other rabbit hole I'm not going down today. Don't take me down that rabbit hole. You sure? Uh, yes, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, so Texas focused on this wind generation, and it became 10% of their capacity. They have... I believe 20 or 25 gigawatts of wind energy capacity total. Mm -hmm. uh, they lost, so 10% of their capacity is wind, and they lost 16 gigawatts of production because they froze. Uh, the ones that were working were actually working better than they should be in the wintertime, but the ones that froze, they lost 16 gigawatts uh, net from the wind. Uh, they lost 30 gigawatts from the remaining 90% of their grid. Now, there's nuclear power in that that had to be shut down. A, a temperature sensor tripped as being too cold. Um, the system was working fine, but this sensor tripped, which caused a uh, automated shutdown of the system. Um, the, basically, the system worked the way it was supposed to. Um, so the... Uh, Nuclear being the most regulated industry, nuclear power generation being the most heavily regulated industry in the entire country, not just energy generation. It is the most heavily regulated industry, period, in the country. Even if we tie that in with the 90 percent of their normal fast and loose, you know, free mm -hmm. capitalism versus heavily regulated, that 90 percent, they lost 30 gigawatts of generation capacity. So in total, they lost 46 gigawatts of capacity, which caused the rolling shutdown so that the remaining capacity didn't overload, and that shutdown also right. causing a much greater problem. So 10% of their capacity uh, accounted for 35% of their loss. 90% of their capacity accounted for 65% of their loss. Dividing 35 by 10, uh, uh, 0.35 by 0.1, you get a 0.72, uh, sorry, you get a 3.5 factor, okay? Yeah. Dividing 0.65 by 0.9, you get a 0.72 repeating, 7222 uh, factor, all right? Dividing those- use a human calculator over there. Dividing those by each other, you get a 4.85, I think, 4.84, 4.85 to one ratio of the cause of the problem, you know, the 10% the, the of capacity causing 35% of the problem versus 90% of the capacity causing 65% of the problem. That 10% had a 4.85 to 1 problem creation versus its percentage of the total compared to the rest of the system. So even though you had twice as much loss of capacity from the rest of the system, you had the, nine times as much. Right. Uh, yeah, the generation the, 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 from the system. Exactly. So the green energy caused 
almost exponentially greater problem for the system. And yet people like AOC are like, well, we need to depend more on that stuff. <sighs> One ninth of the capacity caused half the problem or more yeah. than half the problem. A third of the problem. 10% yeah. of the capacity caused a third of the problem. So or, I'm yeah, all for times. green energy, right? I, I would love to put a solar uh, panel system and maybe wind, but my area wouldn't wouldn't work well with wind because we're in the too middle of the yeah, too many trees on the side of a mountain. I'd need to be on a plane. Cut all um, the trees down. That'd be nice. <laughs> no, I like my trees. Um, Natural fence. Yeah, but so I'm all for green energy. Uh, our state's uh, alternative energy regulations, as they tie into our Alabama power uh, power regulations, make it prohibitive. Uh, so if I have to tie into the grid, my total energy cost for grid power would be higher if I had – uh, alternative energy supplementing it than it would be uh, just tying into the grid. So right, it's called Alabama Power. Got to get the same amount of money every month, whether you need the power or not. Well, it's it's not even just that. That's the argument. You know, the 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 people who are arguing against Texas's uh, fast and free capitalism and arguing yeah. against Cruz would say. But the problem is the regulations that that same uh, Public Service Commission. Uh, I think we've talked about this before on the show. Uh, Alabama has a must-provide standard handed down from the Public Service Commission. So yeah. uh, any grid-tie alternative energy is going to be as cyclical and uh, unreliable as Texas's system was. Uh, if, you, if it's raining, if there's a snowstorm, your solar power system is not going to produce. Uh, if, if it's too windy – your so, uh, your wind power is not going to work. If there's no wind, your wind power is not going to work. Uh, the only thing that's consistently reliable is hydropower. So if you have your own homemade or custom-built hydro system on a river or a stream on your property, you could produce consistent power. Uh, so if you're tied into the grid and your alternative energy doesn't work, Alabama law requires – Alabama power to provide you with power as you need it. So the the uh, unpredictable cyclical nature of alternative of green energy sources puts a higher than usual strain on their system from people who have grid tie alternative energy systems. Gotcha. So because of Alabama law, you create more unpredictability in their energy production needs. And so that unpredictability is what you're paying for basically exactly exactly gotcha. okay uh so there there are specific issues that cause that in alabama that are tied to our laws not alabama power just being uh a a stingy uh capitalism is bad kind of company well i mean they are but that's beside the point <laughs> yeah well we have really good rates uh they're not as good as they used to be compared to the rest of the country but we do have good rates for our power yeah. i mean we have some of the most expansive hydropower generation of anywhere in the country, but you know. Anyway, it's all good. Current events topic. Yeah. So uh, you said you don't want to go down the rabbit hole, so maybe next week we'll uh, touch base and see if uh, the incoming administration has uh, figured out what their position is on reopening schools amongst the pandemic. <laughs> so we'll just set that off to the side. We'll give them some more time to deliberate. 
And uh, the, the main thing we wanted to get into today is this ridiculousness. I'm sorry. Wait, we got to be objective at first. This um, reemerged um, perspective referred to as the white identities or the eight white identities. Now, for some context, eight, eight. There'll be time for that. <laughs> For some context, it was put out by Barner Hess, who, according to profile on Northwestern's page, is the Associate Professor of African-American Studies, Political Science, and Sociology there at Northwestern University. Um, and also kudos to this guy, because he's got a PhD, but he's not listed as Dr. Barner Hess. And I don't know how many people I've running, run into that have that doctorate that insist you call him doctor. So we'll give him the benefit of the doubt there. But uh, this idea, from what I could tell, actually goes back to as early as 2014. So this is not a new idea. This, this is not an idea that has emerged because of Trump or because of the events over the last eight years or four years. Sorry. This is uh, something that's just kind of simmering. And it seems to go back to around the time of the emergence of Black Lives Matter you know, kind of in that aftermath, one of the ripples. And it's, uh, to me, it's, it's quite interesting because we're discovering it now because um, these eight white identities, as they're called, were put forth to parents uh, of students in the New York uh, City public education system as food for thought. So... Yeah. Let's let's chew on some food for thought, shall we, Alex? Yeah. So it came out it came out after uh, Robin D'Angelo created her concept of white fragility, the Kafka trap of no yes. matter what you do, you're proving white fragility. Uh, so th this is in that same kind of time frame around Obama's second term, where uh, white man bad predated orange man bad. Um, so the eight white identities, uh, starting at the worst in their Mindset. It's a spectrum. One, yeah, one to eight spectrum. and starts off the, the worst. Uh, and, and what kills me is it, it, it was brought back into the public light because New York City school system is teaching this in the classroom. I don't know if you mentioned that specifically, but th th this came up because it's being taught in public schools. Thank God my kids yeah. aren't in public school, much less in New York. Um, <laughs> anyway, so uh, the concept is there is a regime of whiteness and there are action-oriented white identities. People who identify with whiteness are one of these. It's about time we build an ethnography of whiteness since white people have been the ones writing about and governing others. Wow. So, so let's stop there for a second. People who identify with whiteness are one of these. We don't identify with whiteness. <laughs> right? Yay! <laughs> Done. Okay, so I didn't even catch that. Don't identify with whiteness. I identify as an American. <laughs> um, I, I identify in numerous ways. The color of my skin is not particularly one of them. I yeah, mean, the color of my skin doesn't matter. And, and that's that's an interesting perspective as we go into this because this concept of whiteness is it's muddying the waters, right? It's taking language that we associate in one way and it's co-opting it for another use. Uh, we, we've seen that with Black Lives Matter and the rise of blackness or, you know, what it means to be black. Um, you know, and now we also see it here with this concept of whiteness. 
And I think back to uh, last year, was it the uh, National Museum of African-American History and Culture had the, um, the white culture or whiteness and white culture display that was up for about a week or two before they realized, oh, you, you mean to say math and science and objective truth and the nuclear family, all of that's whiteness? Oh, that, that's bad? Okay, let's, let's take it down. Yeah. Right? Just like Black Lives Matter had their what we believe section removed. So it's like popping their head up to see how radical can we be? Nope. The, the, um, um, we saw the shadow. So let's go back in the hole for a little bit. We'll come back later. And this seems like another attempt to that, to see how far can we press this? Yeah. What kind of pushback are we going to get? How far can this Overton window go? And the problem right now is Democrats are, taking such extreme advantage of what they see as momentum after the events of January 6th and Trump being, uh, you know, quieted, I guess you'd say, after the 6th, uh, to make anything conservative and right-wing evil or equitable to whiteness, uh, whiteness or <laughs> national, um, oh gosh, uh, not national, um, homemade terrorism. Yeah. <laughs> Brennan was literally on TV a couple of days after the six talking about right wingers, including libertarians, uh, being uh, terrorists, homemade, libertarians. homemade terrorists. Yeah, I know, right? It's wild. But anyway, so uh, the push is stronger now because they feel like they've got extra momentum. But to, to get into these, number one, on the red side of the spectrum, evil side of the spectrum, white supremacists. Clearly marked white society that preserves names and values white superiority. Who who identifies whiteness as white superiority? I mean, even if you look at something like the Proud Boys, right? Mm -hmm. They look at Western society as superior, not white society, and yet they're called white supremacists, right? Well, the, the uh, reason for that is things like what we see in the Black Lives Matter a statement of faith, things like we saw in the uh, Smithsonian last year, is that this concept of whiteness isn't just uh, a product of skin color, but they're using it to describe a philosophy of thought yeah. or philosophies of thought, maybe a bucket to, to put it all in. And what is done in practice is the things that we don't agree with or the things that violate uh, our new orthodoxy are thrown in the bucket. Yeah. I mean, it, it is, it is, it's funny how for three or four decades, the left have been mocking anyone who accuses them of social Marxism, uh, advancing social Marxism. But what's been going on the last couple of years is the epitome of social Marxism. They are destroying the culture with this, preposterous redefinition of everything. So that's white supremacy. Uh, clearly marks white society that preserves names and values white superiority. White voyeurism, you know, <laughs> all these terms, just the terms are yes. absurd. Uh, wouldn't challenge a white supremacist, desires non-whiteness because it's interesting, pleasurable, seeks to control the consumption and appropriation of non-whiteness Fascination with culture. Example, consuming black culture without the burden of blackness. What? So when I was in middle school and I was in Birmingham City Schools, for, for those of you who don't know, it's a uh, predominantly black 
school system. Um, I talked the language of my fellow class members. I listened to hip hop and rap music, right? So uh, would I have been a white voyeurist or voyeur at that I mean, point? Would I have been white voyeurist? Would have. How dare you? <laughs> so, so consuming the black culture, whatever that means, without the burden of blackness, whatever that means. Yeah. So we've been hearing the term white privilege since the beginning of the Black Lives Matter movement in four. Uh, apparently white privilege on this scale is less bad than white supremacists uh, and then less uh, less bad than supremacist is white voyeurism. Less bad comes, and I'm, I'm using that horrible grammar on purpose to mock the concept. Uh, third less bad, white privilege may critique supremacy but a deep investment in questions of fairness, equality under the normalization of whiteness and the white rule, sworn goal of diversity. This is this, this, uh, this brings to mind the, those folks who um, are apologizing for their whiteness and seeking to be the the anti-racist. Yeah, right. It's 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 those that. Oh they no, have no. A... Well, we're not even too anti-racist yet. Oh, That's okay. Way further down. Okay. Uh, so white benefit, sympathetic to a set of issues, but only privately, won't speak or act in solidarity publicly because benefiting through whiteness in public uh, because well, it's abbreviated, not proper gra grammar any better than what I was using a moment ago. And people of uh, color. Won't, yeah, won't speak and act in solidarity publicly because of benefiting of was left out because of benefiting through whiteness in public. In parentheses, some POC are in this category as well. Wow, really? <laughs> yeah, because you can have multicultural whiteness now. You didn't know that? Yes, you can, which is the whole. <laughs> so it's interesting that this concept existed as early as when did you say 2014? Yeah. Because multicultural. That's the earliest I could find, at least. Okay. Uh, multicultural whiteness was a new term to me recently. Uh, yeah. It wasn't coined here, but that's basically what they're saying multicultural whiteness. Planting um, the seeds. Yes. When the CEO director of Proud Boys, who is a light brown, guy, right? brown skinned Hispanic guy, he's not a white dude, uh, was arrested. Multicultural it, it, whiteness, my friend. Yeah, multicultural whiteness, baby. Uh, so <laughs> apparently, number four is where he would fit in. Uh, number five, you know, we're starting to get into the yellow zone where it's almost green and acceptable. Uh, white confessional. Some exposure of whiteness takes place, but as a way of being accountable to POC after, seek validation from POC. I have a black friend. <laughs> yes! <laughs> I, I, I willfully go to his events and try to learn his culture. I have a black That's friend. Right. That's, I, that's I have visited a black church. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I have, driven through, I have driven through a Hispanic part of town. Yeah, like what's that, that the, would be a good one. I don't even know if Hispanic counts, right? Because this seems to draw a binary between white and black. Yeah. Like there's no mention of, it says POC, but there's, it, it's again, that ambiguous nature of the language. Yeah, right. No they clarification haven't even defined whiteness. They're yeah. defining how, how much benefits you get from whiteness, but they haven't even really defined whiteness in, yeah. in this. That's, that's um, what I find so frustrating because when you try to have these conversations, or, or at least when, when I've tried to have them, um, numerous people who are explicit apologists for Black Lives Matter, uh, 
white fragility or anti-racism, things like that, what, what this might call blackness, when I try to bring up those questions, I'm, I don't know how uh, you get the, uh, what response you get, but for me, oftentimes it's, you need to educate yourself. Right? <laughs> yeah, and I'm like, okay, I'm looking at Where stuff like this going, what, where's, the, where's the dictionary for these? Right. Yeah. I know what these terms mean. What was it like a, a mutual friend of ours who will remain unnamed? He said, I understand all of those words, kind of, or not in this order. <laughs> yeah. It's like the yeah. terms make sense uh, in a certain context. In this context, it, it, no, it just, it, yeah. it, there's so much open, right? You, you've got to come in already with an understanding of what these are for this to even make sense. And if you don't it's come in with Calvinism, Oh my gosh. Uh, <laughs> I mean, resist, man. I'm sorry. You're not wrong. Calvinism <laughs> is just more true. How about oh, that? Can that, we agree there? Where's that GIF when we need it? Oh, we need to tag that GIF when we put this up. You're not wrong. Epic. Oh, I love okay, it. So that's the first five. White supremacist is one. White voyeurism is two. We're going from red to green. Uh, white privilege is three. White benefit is four. White confessional is five. That's the one we just talked about, uh, seeking validation from POC. Six is white critical. Take on board critiques of whiteness. Uh, sorry. What does uh, it mean to take on board critiques? So take on board, take responsibility for critiques of whiteness and invest in exposing, marking the white regime refuses to be complicit with the right, with the regime whiteness, speaking back to whiteness. Again, what is whiteness? I'm so glad I don't identify with whiteness. Right. So that none, none of this applies to me. I don't even know what whiteness is, much less identify with it. Thank God. Okay. Number seven, white trader. <laughs> So when you're an Uncle Tom and a black trader, it's a bad thing. <laughs> but apparently oh, a, white a white trader, trader is good. It's a good thing because we're actually getting into the green zone. Yeah. Actively refuses complicity, names what's going on, intention is to subvert white authority and tell the truth at whatever cost, need them to dismantle institutions. So you need you, white traders to dismantle whiteness. Yes. And here's here's where even with the language that they use, white critical says refuses to be complicit with the regime. But then the next level up, white traitor actively refuses complicity. Yes. It's the same thing. Like, how do you know if you're white critical or white traitor? Like, what? You've got to bring in these definitions. You've got to bring in this understanding with you. This this is not going to give you the understanding you want. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> educate yourself. Okay, I'm reading yeah. it. There's nothing in here. It's such an obfuscation. Oh, yes. painfully. That's the word I was looking for earlier. Thank you. So, so number eight, the the green zone back daddy of the green zone, white abolitionist. Changing institutions, dismantling whiteness, and not allowing whiteness to reassert itself. I'm sorry, what? Are, are we talking about white genocide? <laughs> because well, see, that's and that's where like. that that's where you have this uh, ambiguity between uh, the terms, right? Like you say, the obfuscation. Um, people who see this and actually take it to mean literally color of skin. By the time you get down here, it's all right. Out with whiteness. 
Bye. You are excised from political discourse. You are excised from cultural influence. You are excised from everything, um, potentially even including violence, because you know the the struggle is real, right? Yeah. And that's what was it uh, that that we read uh, last year with uh, BLM? It's a glorious struggle, right? It, it's a glory oh, to engage in that struggle. You bring in BLM, the Canadian BLM. Uh, I don't know if she's CEO or what the the creator of the Canadian wing of the BLM calls whites a genetic mutation, a genetic subhuman genetic abnormality. Well, that's like um, it needs to be gotten it? rid of. Yeah, Nick Cannon talking about Black Hebrew Israelites. What last year, oh. the year before, mm-hmm. uh, re- referring to to whiteness as that same kind of substandard or subnormal um, condition. Yeah. Which is so, interesting. I was born this way. I can't. I can't help the color of my skin. Just right. for the record. And what what's really concerning about all this is you're already seeing the Orwellian unpersoning of uh, disliked or unacceptable people and thought uh, on the social media platforms. In the acceptance of it, in encouragement of it, in the public forum by elected officials who are breaking their oath of office by supporting this kind of stuff. They're not doing it, but they're still breaking their oath of office by encouraging it in the private sector. And the social media platforms are not nearly as private as people think they have multi, they have multi-billion dollar contracts with the three letter agencies, the intelligence community. And if you don't think the intelligence community is exerting influence on them, uh, through those contracts and by the continued existence of those billions of dollars of revenue stream, I pity you for being yeah. that naive. Uh, so th- there is there is an unholy alliance between big tech private companies and the more author- authoritarian arm of our socially progressive government. <sighs> Man. It, th- things like this um, help me to see how the conversation that Casey and I had is so important today. Because from a Christian perspective, from a biblical perspective, one of the things that um, I value so much is that the Bible has a clarity and the Bible has a consistency. Right? There, there are some troubling passages in Scripture. No doubt about it. But there are also very clear, very easy to understand passages of Scripture. This entire creed is confusing. It's unclear. It obfuscates, like you said, and it provides no direction. Right? And as people of the truth, as people who value truth, right, before you can reach somebody on an emotional level to, to any benefit, there has to be some truthfulness to what you're doing. And this, this goal or this idea of, of a spectrum, it's not clear what the structure is and it's not clear how to move from structure or from, from parts of the structure to other parts of the structure. Yeah. What, what does it mean to be complicit as opposed to uh, what, what's the, the term here for, for, privilege, um, a deep investment in questions, right? Or changing institutions, 
if I don't have the power to change the institution, is that just something I can't be a part of? Right. If, if, if I'm looking at this right, there needs to be not just clear direction, but there needs to be an empowerment to achieve it. And, and that seems to be lacking in so many of the different things like this. We yeah. don't have the, the same clarity, the same consistency and, and that empowerment is lacking to actually achieve what's being put forth as these goals. Yeah. And I mean, just just to give a perspective. Right. This assumes that whites are whiteness, people who I let's 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 keep up with their terms. Yep. People who identify with whiteness are one of these. So I guess they would just accuse us of identifying with whiteness because our skin's white. But That's we don't know that. because it doesn't explain it. So whoever falls into one of these eight categories Obviously, they think some people of color do. Uh, people who identify with whiteness, even if we just narrow it to the white people in this country, whites account for 63% of the country. All right, something like that, 65%. White skin color, Caucasians. Yeah, white skin color <laughs> people because his whiter Hispanics are even considered Caucasian, uh, Hispanic Caucasian. Anyway, I digress. So roughly 63 percent of 325 million people. I don't know if 325 is still accurate, but it's at least that 204 million plus people are white. And we don't even know if that is people who identify with whiteness. Right. But if we take that to be the sum total of the number and it's not a larger number than that. We, one out of 204 million people has an influence on the system that this is supposedly created by. I mean, come on. Yeah. The, 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 the concepts, there's a network of systems too, right? right. That's, it's a that's network part of, of that baggage you got to bring in. So there's a network of systems. You as an individual have an influence on the system, even though you're, you're literally smaller than a drop in the bucket. Right. Uh, if you put 200 million drops in a bucket, you're probably going to overflow it several times. Uh, but we have to actively oppose the system, assuming we are who it's talking about. And it assumes we have some influence on the system because of our nature. Yeah. It assumes we have benefits from the system because of our nature. I'm sorry. It, it's just absurd. There, there's no validity. To, there's no scientific foundation for it whatsoever. It is cultural Marxism through and through. It makes presumptions. It makes presuppositions. And I'm sorry, I, I'm as as much as I joke it, about mock, it requires presuppositions. Yes, right. it, it, no, it, it doesn't just require presuppositions. It is by its very nature presuppositional, right? And I, I'm sorry for comparing it to uh, 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 Calvinism because it, as much as I dislike Calvinism, I would not even remotely compare it to this. <laughs> uh, Apology accepted. Yeah, uh, the, the, I mean. The, this is just mind blowing. It, it, it's even worse, and I can't believe I'm saying that. It's even worse than white fragility. And the if you do this, you prove white fragility. Fragility. If you deny this, you prove white fragility. You you are white fragility. Period. There's no way out of it. It's a Kafka trap. And yeah. this is even worse because it doesn't even define the terms. White fragility at least goes very explicitly explicitly into defining what it means. 
this this has no definition of terms. It's yeah. it's just. Uh, well, well, like you said, uh, or, or like we identified before, right? People who identify with whiteness, we could not identify, and then somebody would apply that identity to us. Yeah. So even in denying it, we're still on this spectrum somewhere because somebody else tells us uh, that you know somebody who's not us without our consent, even though consent. Uh, you know, it's just, <laughs> it's just oh, so dude, much. I've I, I've had white people tell me to check my privilege, and I'm like, oh, okay. Actually, honestly, in conversations I have online, white people who tell me to check my privilege are about ten to one of the non-white people who tell me to check my privilege. <sighs> yeah. Anyway. Well, I got to pack and get out of here soon, dude. Uh, All right, brother. I know you're, you're traveling, so be safe. Um, and this is really, you know, the, the, the surface layer of the discussion, right? There's so much deeper. So we'll, we'll see what, uh, what comes of this, how this grows and metastasizes throughout the culture and probably, um, dive in a little more at a later date, but thanks for joining us on the YouTube. Thanks for joining us on your podcast catcher. We appreciate it. Uh, thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time. Love you guys.